Well, let's go ahead and, and grab our swords of the Spirit. Uh, today we're going to be in Psalms 42 and 43. Uh, these are the first two Psalms of Book 2 of the Psalter. You remember there are five books in the, in the, uh, the Psalms, 150 uh, Psalms that are divided into five books. We've been in Book 1 lately. Uh, last week, uh, Bill Schwecki took our first uh, dip into Book 2 with Psalm 51. Uh, and today we're going to backtrack a little bit and hit the first couple of psalms uh, that introduce this book, and next week we'll do the last psalm in book two as well. And so let's go ahead and, and turn to the word now and hear what the Lord has to say to us this morning. And by the way, I'm going to read both psalms as if they're one, because uh, originally these were one psalm. They got divided a little later on down the road. So, beginning at the top here. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with deadly wound in my bones my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God to my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The word of the Lord. Well, you know, brothers and sisters, it is hard for us to imagine 
not being able to worship together, isn't it? We live in a town just within the town limits. Here in Warrenton, there are 16 churches. I haven't bothered to count how many there are in Fauquier County, but churches are everywhere in our culture. And so it's kind of easy for us as Americans to, well, to take worship sort of for granted. But right now, as we speak today, there are believers all over the world who are meeting in secret. There are many places in the world, we all know, where it's dangerous for Christians to meet for worship. And I think a, a prime and very uh, a timely example of this is in North Korea. According to uh, author and pastor Randy Alcorn uh, in his Eternal Perspective Ministries, there are roughly a half a million Christians in North Korea, some, something like 23 million people in the country. And there's a half a million Christians in North Korea. But the persecution of Christians there is so severe that apparently if anyone's caught with the Bible, they're considered to be a South Korean spy and they can be executed. So how do people in places like that worship God? Well, of course, very carefully. But you know what? They take the admonition of Hebrews 10.25 very seriously. That as believers, we ought to stir up each other in, into love and good works. And we should not be neglecting to meet together. That's a beautiful command. But you know what? They're not just obeying a command when they risk their lives to gather together and worship. They also have a burning desire to get together and worship. I read about a woman named Hei Wu, who's a North Korean believer. She says that Christians gather secretly in North Korea. And they go to places like a grove of trees, some woods somewhere, and they will gather one by one so as not to draw attention. They might gather in a cornfield. And she even says this. She even says that sometimes when they need to, they'll gather under a blanket to worship God. Can you imagine that? Gathering under a blanket for your worship service. But that's what they've got to do. They have to do all they can to keep from being caught. But of course, a lot of them are found out anyway. And they're sent to prison. According to Eternal Perspective Ministries, between 100,000 and 150,000 Christians are imprisoned right now in concentration camps because of their faith. They don't have enough to eat. They don't have adequate medical supplies. They don't have adequate shelter. Hey Wu ended up in a concentration camp herself. Now she's free, she's living outside of North Korea, but she reports that there was only one place in her camp where they could gather together without being caught. Listen to this. She says, and I quote, the outhouse of the prison was the only place we could worship. And so they gathered there, and they sang their praises to God, but they had to sing them silently so the guards couldn't hear them. And they would share Bible verses with each other and encourage each other in their very difficult walk with the Lord. This is the kind of thing that's going on right now somewhere in North Korea. That's pretty staggering, isn't it? 
But you know what? To those believers, the risk is worth it. Because worshiping together to hear God's word and to sing God's praises, man, it is like water for the soul in a dry and thirsty land. And this is exactly what Psalms 42 and 43 are all about. This kind of thirsting for God and a longing to worship Him with other believers. We can only imagine the dire circumstances of having to worship God in an outhouse and how our North Korean brothers and sisters right now are surely praying an agonized prayer to be in a setting just like ours this morning. Oh, how they would love that, where we worship freely. Surely their guards are also taunting them with the same questions that these two psalms ask. Where is your God? But you know, even though we might not have ever spent time in a concentration camp, most of us have a lot of firsthand experience with enduring our own struggles, don't we? These are times when we wonder whether there really is a God. We we feel like that if there is, well, he must have just forgotten me. And so today we're going to look at both Psalm 42 and 43 and see how it speaks into that kind of dry uh, condition, that spiritual desert that we can be in. Originally, these two psalms were one song, but at some point, the compilers of the psalms separated out the last five verses to make it two psalms, and they probably did that for liturgical purpose, so they could use the passages separately. Psalm 43 makes a nice, neat, standalone prayer. It'd be one you could pray through this afternoon. Psalm 42 and 43 begin book two of the Psalter. You can look at your chart that you have in your bulletin. It might look familiar to you. We passed it out the first day of this series, but I wanted to make sure you had a copy of it. There's also extra copies in the back if you need one. But look at that later. Right now you need to listen to me. (laughs) The original title of the psalm, uh, the part of the title, that is, that's in all capital letters at the top of of Psalm 42, uh, that title, that's an ancient title, Uh, that was uh, uh, put there by the the people who compiled the Psalms. And that title tells us that it's associated with the sons of Korah. Now, this is a musical branch of the Levitical priests. And who specifically wrote these lines? Well, we have no way of knowing that. But the title also says that it is a mascal. And this is a musical term that means it's a song that teaches us a lesson of wisdom or piety. And the lesson of Psalm 42 and 43 is all about hope. And so the big idea of these two psalms together is this. Our thirst for communion with God is quenched when we gather with other believers to worship the one who has saved us. And we find uh, the first two points that drive home the big idea in Psalm 42. And we find the third point in Psalm 43. So the first point in verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 42 is this. True believers hope even when they're desperate. And in these verses we're going to see a painful longing for communion with God to be restored. Our second point is in verses 6 through 11. And this is where true believers hope even through doubt and fear. And in these verses we're going to see that a spiritual desert is indeed a lonely and dangerous and fearful place to be. And then the third point is all five verses of Psalm 43. 
And this is where true believers hope on their knees. And we will see a prayer uh, for the light and truth of God so that God will vindicate our hope in him. And that, all of that, will drive us to our take-home lesson, which is this. No matter what life looks like to us today, right now, God is going to vindicate our persevering hope in him. It is a guarantee. And so let's go ahead and dig in. Let's look at our first point. True believers hope even when they're desperate in verses 1 through 5, and we see a painful longing for a restoration of our communion with God. Verses 1 and 2 say this, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You know, when we as believers feel separated from God, it's as if we're separated from life, isn't it? But you know what? It's normal for us to feel that way from time to time. If you've been a Christian for a while, you already know that by God, that God in his wisdom allows us to experience some drought sometimes. For some of us, that's for a season. For others of us, it's for a very long time. But the thing that we all have in common is that for the true believer, it is hope that sustains us. It is hope in God who sustains us. The dry spiritual times can come when life just doesn't go the way that we think it should. A loved one dies. A friend betrays us. A husband and wife isn't who we thought they were. Any number of personal struggles, deep, deep personal struggles that leave us feeling disoriented and confused and feeling angry and disillusioned with God. And yet, because we know the Lord, we do long to return to that sweet communion with our God. The psalmist portrays our longing as an intense and savage kind of thirst. You know, I've been terribly thirsty a few times in my life, and it's an awful experience to go through especially when there's no water around to be had. I've run out of water a couple of times on a backpacking trip, and i got to tell you that having a drink becomes an absolute obsession when you don't know when and where your next sip is going to come from. But the picture that the psalmist is painting here is a whole lot more severe. He's describing a thirst that must be fulfilled because his life depends on it right now. It's water that the deer needs, but it's communion with God that we need as believers. Our need for God is just as desperate as that thirst is for that deer. Because without God, we die. And then in verse 3, there's an ironic twist. Because we learn that the closest thing that the psalmist, the closest that the psalmist gets to quenching his thirst for God is his own tears just rolling down his cheeks as he just mourns the fact that he's not in communion with God. His tears punctuate his thirst for God. And you know what? That's a natural response. That's pretty much how we ought to respond. It's right that we long to know God's presence, even to the point of grieving. It'd be a contradiction for us if we count ourselves as believers and didn't yearn for God that way. But we thirst for God. Just as the deer pants for the flowing streams of verse 1, for the clean, crisp, clear, living water of the mountain stream. 
We long for the living God. In verse 2, the only one who is truly God, the only one who can really give us life. That's why we long for the living God. But our longing for God has got to be grounded in who God really is, doesn't it? The God of the Bible. If we're not longing for the God of the Bible, well, we're longing for something other than God, aren't we? We're just longing for a figment of our imaginations. We're longing and hoping in something that is hopeless. But, you know, I think sometimes our tears of grieving and longing for God are just compounded by bad theology, which only serves to confuse us. You see, we've got to be careful not to expect things of God that he doesn't promise us. Things like, well, that being Christian somehow means that all we got to do is pray and then all of our problems are just going to magically float away. I've been around Christians like that. And I tell you what, when the hard time comes, they don't know what to do. And they start thinking that God is not as big as he is. They start questioning God and wondering where he is and how come he's not fixing this problem. And so we need to realize that God uses even trials for his glory and that hardship does not mean that somehow the devil has one up on God, that somehow the devil might beat God at his own game. We've got to remember that God never loses. Well, this is the struggle that the author of the Psalms is having today. He weeps. He weeps because he longs for God, but his tears also taunt him with a horrifying question at the end of verse 3. Where is your God? Has, Has he run away? Is he not big enough to handle my problem? Is he not sovereign? Maybe God can't handle this one. Maybe he's just forgotten me. And so the psalmist is struggling to understand his suffering in light of God's promises. How in the world can God be loving and merciful but leave me here in a desert all thirsty and lonely? But you know, this is also how the world taunts us, isn't it? God isn't big enough to handle your problems. God's just a crutch for the weak anyway. Why are you trying to depend on him? He's just a figment of your imagination. Look at all the bad things that are happening in the world around us. If there was a God, he would do something about it. Where is your God? Where is he anyway? You know, I think there's probably some people in Texas today who are wondering what the answer is to that question after they've seen what they've seen. And those are people we need to be praying for. But you know, if we as believers find ourselves wondering where God is, that's when we realize that our problem isn't really about our circumstances. This is when we realize that our problem is about whether we trust God in the first place. The lesson that we've got to learn is that the joy of the Lord is not circumstantial, but it's based instead on the holiness of God and on the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to Christians who were being persecuted in in ways that maybe the North Koreans are familiar with, but ways that we find hard to imagine. They were being persecuted for their faith. And look what he says to them in Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
Isn't that incredible? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. You see, a Christian rejoices in our Lord Jesus Christ no matter what is going on. This is why Christians will gather at a prison outhouse to worship together. It's because he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy to be celebrated. Even though our situation might be dire and awful, we have Jesus Christ the Lord to celebrate. We have our salvation to celebrate. And so our joy is worked out in the midst of the severity of this life. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord. God is acknowledging here that we've got one. And so he says, cast your burden on the Lord. And he will what? Make it all go away? Make it magically disappear? No. He says, the Lord will sustain you. He'll help you walk through that difficulty. And he will never permit the righteous to be moved. He will never, ever, ever permit one who is counted righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ to be moved away from true faith in him. And so unlike the gospel of circumstantial happiness, the gospel of the Bible shows us that we've got to cross a desert or two in our life. We've got to cross those deserts as we walk with the Lord And he will sustain us in our trek across the hot sand. It's a guarantee. But all of this is a part of the training and discipline of the Lord in Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That discipline teaches us to trust God and to stand on the promises that God will sustain us even though we thirst for him like a dehydrated deer in the desert. It's a beautiful promise to hang on to when we're in those times. And when we trust God to discipline us, even in unpleasant ways, we're able to hope. That's when we're able to hope. And it is our memory of God's goodness that reminds us to hope. And more precisely, What we as believers long for above all things is to worship him joyfully. And we want to worship him in the presence of our fellow believers again. And that's why the psalmist remembers the sweetness of fellowship with God's people in verse 4. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. What a beautiful, beautiful thing to remember. But, you know, now we understand a little bit more of the psalmist's trouble. For some reason, we don't know exactly why he is unable to go to Jerusalem and participate in the temple worship. For the Jew, the the temple at Jerusalem was the focal point of their worship of God. It's where their sins were atoned for and where they gathered for the festivals and feasts that God commanded them to observe in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Their identity was wrapped up in the temple because that's where God was. And simply put, the psalmist, is he's just longing to worship God, to be in communion with God, and to be in communion with the people of God. 
And this is a longing, by the way, if you notice, that comes out while he's praying. In verse 4, he is pouring out his soul to God. He's remembering the joy of worship. And that's what helps us to understand verse 5. And this is where we see, for the first time, the refrain that is repeated three times in Psalms 42 and 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist's memory of worship in the temple in verse 4, even though it's bittersweet, is a reminder of the true character of the one he worships. And so the question in verse 5 is meant to rebuke himself for doubting. He's acknowledging that the taunting of both his tears and his enemies has caused him to despair. It's caused him to be downcast and in turmoil. And in Hebrew, the word for turmoil, by the way, is a really deep murmuring. This is a groaning and an agony, really. And so the question he's asking, though, implies the true answer. Not that God has abandoned him, but that God is indeed trustworthy and faithful. And so all of his groaning is for naught. Maybe he's remembering the promise of Psalm 9, verse 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. He's reminding himself in verse 5 that even though his circumstances might uh, point to the contrary, God is trustworthy. Psalm 62, 8 says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And so in verse 5, the psalmist is basically saying to himself, You know what? You really don't need to be downcast. You really don't. Because God is not going to forget you. You belong to him. And so trust God because he is faithful. He's faithful to keep his promises. And so the second half of verse 5 through 6a, this is the second half of the refrain. This is a self-exhortation. The psalmist, in other words, has given himself a little pep talk. He's reminding himself that God really is worthy of his hope. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. God is going to keep his promise, so he needs to hope in that. But hope for the Christian, hope for the believer, means that we wait patiently but expectantly for God to work in our lives. But the psalmist isn't telling himself just to cling to a mere possibility. You know, I really hope that the Nationals win the World Series this year. I really do. But it's just a possibility. Rats. I wish, it, I wish it could be so. But you see, the psalmist here is describing a hope that is a solid and sure anticipation of what God will do. There's no question about it. He's expressing a fact that God is going to definitely restore him to communion and fellowship. And so the psalmist's hope is sure because he understands that he's depending on the power of the living God to deliver him. He's not depending on himself. He's not depending on anything else, on anybody else. And you see, true believers hope as we wait patiently and confidently for God to act in our lives. Now, of course, a resolution to our earthly problems is certainly a major part of our hope, isn't it? We want that to happen. 
But the vindication of the psalmist's hope, above all things, is that God is going to intervene so that his complaint, so that his lament, so that his blues and despair are going to be turned into praise. His hope is that he's going to be able to publicly acknowledge in the company of all believers the power of God. That's his hope. And you know what? This is the essence of why we live. This is the essence of why God has created us. Created us. We live to worship God. We live to celebrate His power and His mercy and His character and His holiness. Our worship of God is why He created us in the first place. And it is the goal, in fact, of His whole plan of redemption. Psalm 86, 9 says, All the nations you have made shall come, come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. That's what the psalmist is longing for. And it's what we as followers of Christ should be longing for too. Yes, we want our difficult circumstances to change. Absolutely. And surely they will as God finishes his plan of redemption. And surely our brothers and sisters in North Korea are longing for their circumstances to change. And they're longing for that with weeping and with tears. Just like we long for and thirst for the to to be quenched as God walks us through and beyond our own struggles in this life. But you know what? As great as having our problems solved can be, that isn't the pinnacle of our joy. There's more. There's something even better than that. You see, the Christians in North Korea aren't striving just to worship freely. They're they're longing for the day when they worship God not in an outhouse or under a blanket or even in a church building like ours. They're longing for the day when we will all worship God as he wipes away every tear and death will be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I could read that all day. (laughs) But you know, until then, our worship together is absolutely essential. Because it's just this, this little window into that glorious reality when Christ comes again to gather us all home. This is why we hope even when we're desperate. Because we know that our ultimate hope will be a reality. There's no question about it. In other words... We want to be in heaven because Jesus is there and we're all going to be singing his praises. It's as simple as that. Well, now that we have that established, we can move on to our next point. In verses 6 through 11, we see that true believers hope even through doubt and fear. And we see this in the context of a spiritual desert that is a lonely and dangerous and fearful place. The rest of verse 6 gives us a better idea of the psalmist's situation and why he cannot worship at the temple. He is uh, praying from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. He describes an isolated mountainous wilderness area in the far north of Israel where the headwaters of the Jordan River are and, by the way, where the transfiguration of Christ occurs in Matthew 17. 
You can see from the photo on your screen that it's a desolate and rugged kind of place. Especially if you imagine yourself as the psalmist living in a time when the fastest travel was the speed of a donkey. According to Google Maps, it's a hard 118 miles between Mount Hermon and the Holy City. That would be 59 hours or so of walking on on modern roads, but of course in the Old Testament days, the roads were much rougher, and so it might take you four days or more to travel that distance. Why the psalmist is so far from Jerusalem, we're not sure. It's just unknown to us. But the song seems to imply that he's not there on a vacation. He's not just homesick. He's under some sort of compulsion to stay there and not be in Jerusalem. And so he remembers the holy city from a distance, sort of wistfully and hopefully. And the point the psalmist is making is that his soul is so cast down because of his isolation. And he's essentially in danger of his life, just as that deer was that was thirsting so much in his desperate search for water. And so the psalmist's situation is very hard. He's far away from the place that God has ordained that he worship. It is no wonder that he's so thirsty for God. Well, so far in Psalm 42, we've seen a couple references to water. First, we saw a thirst for life-giving, living water. We saw also a reference to tears. And now in verse 7, we see another play on the idea of water. But this time, the water only punctuates the psalmist's feeling of isolation. It also punctuates the feeling of danger. The sound of the water seems to drown out the rest of the world. It seems even to drown out his memory of that beautiful sound of praise in the temple in verse 4. The deep, along with verse 7's reference to breakers and waves, those are symbolic of chaos and death. It accentuates the danger of his isolation. The water that he figuratively longed for in verse 1 for refreshment is now very plentiful, but now it's a source of danger and foreboding. In the upper Jordan, there apparently are deep canyons and waterfalls. Here's a picture of one. If you've ever been along a stream like that, you you know that the sound itself kind of makes you feel isolated and more alone because you can't hear anything else at all. Rushing streams like that are also very difficult to cross. I've tried and failed a couple of times. The point is, is that God has allowed the psalmist to become even more isolated from worshiping at the temple. Jerusalem seems so far away to him now. But you know what? Verses 8 and 9 are a beautiful, beautiful lesson for all of us as we pray from the depths of our own trouble. The psalmist somehow is still confident that God is going to deliver him. And so he just pours out his heart to God from the midst of his danger and his isolation. Verses 8 and 9. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. You see, just as his tears were with him day and night in verse 3, God's steadfast love is with him always, even in the mountains of northern Israel. 
And even the distance to Jerusalem cannot separate the psalmist from the love of God. There's something for us to remember. God's steadfast love remains no matter what. I love this. Romans 8, 38 and 9. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. But you know what? That doesn't mean we don't get discouraged sometimes. Because life is just plain hard, isn't it? I mean, it's really hard. I bet you we could all sit around until next Sunday and just tell stories about how hard hard life is. And I bet you every single one of us would admit that we've been discouraged from time to time. I'm sure our brothers and sisters in North Korea get discouraged. But God allows us to do something beautiful and wonderful when our souls are cast down. He allows us just to pour our guts out to him. And not only that, he wants us to. He wants us to do that. So the psalmist prays in verse 9, Why have you forgotten me, God? Don't you hear me? Why why are all your enemies still mocking me for my faith in you? When is it that you're going to decide to finally prove your power and your worth? I know that I can hope in you, but oh Lord, how long? How long do I need to wait? Well, of course, these are sort of rhetorical questions for us as believers. We know that God has not forgotten us. It just seems like he has. It's just too much for our human brains to comprehend why sometimes God would allow our suffering to continue. But we all know that he does. He does. But the oppression of our enemies is especially painful. Oppression here is a strong word in the Hebrew, and it's the same word that's used for the oppression of Israel uh, in their enslavement to the Egyptians in Exodus 3.9. And it would be fair to use this same word for the church in North Korea. And by the way, we should all feel the pain of oppression on their behalf the oppression of our brothers and sisters in North Korea, because whoever is against another believer is against us. Whoever is against another believer is against our Lord Jesus Christ. They oppose God. We are all one in Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and we are one church under him. And so we should feel that pain very much so that the North Koreans are feeling right now as they pray for deliverance. That severe pain is exactly what verse 10 is talking about. The deadly wound in my bones conjures up the idea of not only a a broken bone, but a bone that's been shattered by a crushing blow. Some of you know what that feels like. The psalmist is confessing that the taunting question of his enemies, where is your God? He's confessing that it is that painful to him. And you know, it should be to us too. 
And so in verse 11, the psalmist repeats the refrain that we saw earlier in verse 5. He rebukes himself again, reminds him of the true nature of God. He reminds himself of of God's power to overcome his enemies. He reminds himself to hope in God because the day will come when he's going to sing the praises of God with other true believers. There is no question about it. And that brings us to our final point which we find in the next psalm, in Psalm 43, all five verses. And here we see the true believers hope on their knees. And we will see a prayer for the light and truth of God so that God will vindicate our hope in him. And so the psalmist now turns to God to ask him to act in a specific way to vindicate his hope in verse 1. In other words, it's a prayer that God will prove that the psalmist has been right to hope in God all along. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. You know, there were, there were ungodly people all around the psalmist in his time, and we're surrounded by people who oppose the God of the Bible today. Everybody from charlatan preachers who twist the gospel into knots to people who outright hate the truth, we face opposition from every direction. This is nothing new to the church. We've always faced that opposition. But like the psalmist, we should long for the day when our persevering hope in God is vindicated over people who oppose God. We should long for the day when our salvation is fully consummated as Christ returns again and he proves to anyone who opposes the God of the Bible that we were right to hope in in him, to depend on him as our refuge, as it says in verse 2. We should hope for that day and long for it. And so even though we still despair, the psalmist goes on in verse 2, even though, even though we might feel as though God has rejected us, even though we feel the weight of the oppression of the enemies of God, we still hope. And that's because our hope is not a feeling, it's a reality. And so the psalmist finally prays for what he truly needs in verse 3. Send out your light And your truth, let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. This is the kind of prayer that we should all be praying for ourselves. And it is the prayer we should be praying for our brothers and sisters in places like North Korea. You see, we true believers hope on our knees. We know that the best weapon against the deceit and the oppression of God's enemies is the power of prayer, and what we pray for is his light and his truth. The psalmist has in mind that God's light and truth will reveal the deceit of the ungodly, that that God's light and truth will free him from their oppression. God's light is going to then show the psalmist the way to return to Jerusalem and take him there so that he can worship God in complete joy. We understand light and truth, uh, this light and truth, uh, in the context of the new covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ, of course. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And so we pray for ourselves and for believers in places like North Korea that the light of the world will free us from the oppression of the ungodly. We ask God to equip us with the truth of his written word. We ask God to equip us with the word made flesh, with our, with our relationship with Jesus Christ so that we can testify about our glorious hope in God. 
And you know what? With that kind of confidence in God, we make a vow. And this is what we see in verse 4. We make a vow that we will sing praises among God's people. This is in the future tense. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. You know, the pinnacle of the believer's life is to worship God. And for us to vow that we will beforehand, before we see the victory, even in the midst of our suffering, is to proclaim our utmost confidence in God. This is an amazing amount of confidence that the psalmist is having. And this is, this is a, a confidence that, that means that we believe that there's no better situation in life than to have that kind of confidence in God, than to, than to know that no matter how dry the desert is that we're crossing, that we can trust God, that he's going to fulfill his promises, and that we will be delivered. He will vindicate our hope. He will prove himself worthy of our hope. And that's because we're expressing a hope not in circumstance, but we're expressing a hope that being with Christ is what satisfies us above all things. That even things like physical healing is second to the worth of knowing our Lord. That even our struggles are worth it since we know that God's going to use them for his glory. What we're saying is that the ultimate outcome, our eternal fellowship with God, is our hope above all hopes. Because there's nothing like being with him. And so now we read that refrain in a little bit different light, don't we? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hallelujah. And so there's our take home. This is what we can take home with us today. We can know that no matter what life looks like to us right now, no matter what your struggle is today, that God will vindicate your persevering hope in him. There is no question about it. And that's because true believers hope even when we're desperate. We true believers hope even when there's doubt and fear. We true believers hope on our knees. Even in our darkest hours, our, our, our thirst for our communion with God is quenched when we gather with other believers to celebrate the salvation that he gives us. You know, it might be really hard for us to imagine as Americans being that thirsty, that eager to go to church on Sunday morning. But you know what? Church, church is a, is a little picture of heaven. And we should be as passionate about our worship of God together as the North Koreans are. Our fellowship is an integral part of satisfying our need for God's presence. Here we avail ourselves of the testimony of other believers that stirs us to love and good works. We receive the teaching that equips us for our treks through the desert and equips us to be able to stand against the oppression of our enemies who taunt us with, where is your God? And we receive the encouragement that only fellowship with other true believers can provide 
If you're not sure of that, just find a North Korean believer and ask him. But you know what? Ultimately, we long for that permanent church home in heaven, don't we? In that heavenly sanctuary. That will be the vindication for our hope. And that's because Christ is the head of the church and he is the fulfillment of that hope. He is what makes that hope possible. Because of him, our enemies are crushed instead of our bones. And he turns our despair into joy and gladness. He turns our complaints into praise. And that's because Christ will come again. He will come again. And he's going to take us to a new heaven and earth where all true believers are going to worship him. Just as Peter read earlier, Jesus said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Just imagine what kind of worship service that's going to be on that day. I can hardly wait. But in the meantime, we worship together and we should relish this time together because of what God does in us and through us and because we are in communion with God when we gather to worship. Let's bow our heads and pray and then we'll have communion. Holy and gracious God, we thank you and praise you for the true and sure hope that we have in you. Thank you, Lord, that it is as sure as the sun rose today that our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that your son rose from the dead and has given us this hope that we might spend eternity with him and with you and with all true believers and from every age and every age to come. And so for that, we give you glory and honor and praise. Amen.